This is They Create Worlds, episode 117, Wing Commander. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, Alex, I don't know about you, but I'm tired. We just did, I don't know how many hours of uh, live recording here, and already we're at it only a few days later. That's right. It is now absolutely past June 28th when we did our super huge live stream three-part episode for everybody to watch, and they should tune in except they can't because it already happened. Yes. Now we are back to other things. Like Wing Commander. Wing Commander. You know, that one guy who decided to make this entire franchise and it's wonderful and had all these space fighting and flight things. He had a reason to get a flight stick and we were really happy back in the day. And oh, look, there's Mark Hamill. We can't have a bad time when we have Mark Hamill in our game, right? Yeah, I think that's... Isn't that the one where uh, Luke Skywalker and Sala from Indiana Jones teamed up to, like, murder space kitties or something? I don't know. I've never played it. Space kitties? I thought the space kitties were in a calabath, and we had to, as the Avatar, go and save them or something from a crashed spaceship or something? Well, this is off to a great start. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, now that we have our gigantic episode in the can, giving Jeff many sleepless nights of trying to turn it into something listenable, we are returning now to put out one more small episode before that giant three-parter officially debuts, and looking at one of my personal obsessions from the 1990s, Wing Commander. A flight sim with lots and lots of fun, lasers, rockets, interesting plot. Yeah, and story, and that's one of the things that's very interesting about it, because military-style simulations had been very popular in the 1980s. It's hard to imagine now, but they were actually one of the most popular and one of the most cutting-edge technologically genres on computers in the United States in the 1980s. But they really didn't have much in the way of a story experience. I mean, you had missions you went through, and Oftentimes they were drawn from history, so they might be historical missions, and you can sort of get some story out of it from that. But I think partially because they were trying to just kind of emulate real life, they didn't really think too hard about creating a cohesive universe around them. That's kind of one of the things that sets the Wing Commander series apart. It wasn't quite as hardcore a simulation as some of those 80s and early 90s flight simulators like Falcon or Aces Over the Pacific. By encapsulating that in a whole world and a story that, for the time, in computer gaming was very sophisticated. I mean, it's not really sophisticated compared to novels or good movies, but for a video game, for a computer game, incredibly sophisticated, created just a very irresistible package for a certain type of player that I guess I fit the profile of. Okay, then. Well, to start off... Who is the wonderful person named Chris Roberts who made this game? And how the heck did he come about, you know, 
I want to make a space flight sim called Wing Commander 1, and then made people constantly have to upgrade their computers in order to play the sequels. Look, Chris Roberts is just this guy, you know? I thought that was Zayford. <laughs> so Chris Roberts actually has a very interesting background, or at least somewhat interesting background. He is the product of an international marriage. His father was a British sociology professor. His mother was an American who hailed from actually the area of Silicon Valley. At the time Chris was conceived, his father was doing research down in Guatemala. So he was conceived down in Guatemala. His mother decided that she wanted to give birth because he was down there doing research. This really wasn't a permanent living situation kind of thing. His mother decided that she wanted to be close to family when she gave birth and not have to go through those first few weeks trying to do this in the middle of Guatemala where they don't really have much of a social safety net for themselves, I imagine, just being uh, visitors down there. So he's actually born in California. Very soon after that, his father completes his research and goes back to be a professor and instructor at the University of Manchester. Chris Roberts lives in Manchester from a very young age. So he's kind of British. I mean, he's he's pretty British. I mean, he grew up there. He learned to talk there. So he had a Mancunian accent, the uh, the Manchester accent. He grew up surrounded by British culture. He became a big Manchester United fan. But he did have an American mother, so he had that tie to the United States as well. So his early computer experience was entirely driven by the fact that his father was a university professor and that he was living in Britain, even though his games are far more associated with the United States, or I should say his Wing Commander games specifically are far more associated with the United States since they were put out by Origin. He uh, first discovered computers at the university, just hanging around at a young age. He was one of these guys that, you know, is a young teen or uh, even preteen, you know, kind of in that area, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. Discovered computers, thought this was pretty neat. His father noticed that he was becoming very interested in this and so actually arranged for him to get into a computer course. His father signed him up for this basic programming class when he was 14 years old. Just to put this in context, that would have been in 1982. At that time, you had the beginning of the computer culture in the United Kingdom, which we've talked about before. The first computer kits and even fully assembled computers were starting to come out. The bedroom coder phenomenon was just starting they also got a BBC Micro computer for him as well. The BBC Micro was never as big a platform as the ZX Spectrum or the Commodore 64. It was a little more expensive than the Spectrum. I think even a little more expensive than the Commodore 64. It was a higher class of machine in that sense, but it was also very widespread because it was the official computer of the British school system. So all the schools had a BBC Micro at this time in the UK, just like back in our day, all the schools in the United States had Apple IIs. But whereas that was kind of a Apple itself being able to reach out and sell and get a lot of influence with individual school districts and with individual states, because you have a much more fractured school system in the United States, 
in the United Kingdom, there was a decision made by the Thatcher government that we were coming into a brave new world, and part of her model for New Britain was tech savviness. So there were going to be computers, there was going to be computer instruction. The BBC Micro is going to be that computer, and since it's one national school system, it means it's literally everywhere. The Apple II was only mostly everywhere. This was everywhere, everywhere. So we got a BBC Micro, we learned BASIC. Then it just so happened that the teacher of that course that he took soon afterwards became the founding editor of BBC Micro User Magazine, a new magazine dedicated to the BBC Micro for people that are interested in learning the computer about programs coming out for it. And of course, just like the early computer magazines in the United States, offering games and other programs as type-in listings. Chris Roberts, I guess, made an impression on the instructor during that class. Certainly, he took to it very quickly, was very eager to learn, and was also very focused on games. So this course that he was taking was very much focused on things like the business and all of that, databases. It it wasn't purely about doing fun things. There was a lot of instruction about how computers could be used for other things. Meanwhile, he and a friend were mostly just in the back ignoring that and talking about all the cool games they could make. And so the instructor remembered him and remembered that he liked games and that he was enthusiastic and a decent programmer. And so it was like, hey, you want to uh, provide some games as type-in listings for the magazine? Because, of course, new magazine, they're hungry for content. Chris Roberts is like, sure, I can do that. He does some early games quickly runs up against the limits of BASIC, as everyone does. It's a a very slow language. Interpreted languages were always slower back in the day than your uh, machine language or your assembly language, and uh, BASIC was particularly slow. As all the better programmers did over time, he quickly grew tired of that, started learning machine language so that he could really do some great stuff quickly made the leap from doing these little magazine games to actually selling games to publishers. All of his early games were really based on what was hot in the arcade at the time, and that was very true of the wider British industry as well, I think, in this period. This was the golden age of arcade games. Arcade games were popular in Britain just as they were in the United States, and so a lot of the early games on these computers were very much geared towards that aesthetics. So the very first games that he did, the ones that were in that BBC Microusers type-ins, he did a game called Kong, where you're controlling a giant ape on top of the Empire State Building, throwing rocks at helicopters that are trying to knock you off the building. He did a Popeye game. You know, these are clearly inspired by the Nintendo output. I mean, his Kong is not a Donkey Kong clone because it takes more from the King Kong movie aesthetic, It wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that the entire idea of of doing a Kong-style game was Donkey Kong, certainly doing a Popeye game. Nintendo had done a Popeye arcade game. After that, he did that transition into uh, machine language and created a game called Wizador, which is kind of really his start as a professional game designer. Wizador sounds very similar to Wizardry. (laughs) <laughs> yes, though, it's it doesn't play anything like Wizardry. It's just a similar naming convention. It is a platforming game because we have to remember these early British computers, unlike the United States, where there were some action games done, but there was also a lot of strategy, role-playing, 
all of that kind of thing, the, the British market was really focused on the action stuff. So this was a pretty simple platforming game. Again, I'm sure inspired in part by what was going on in the coin-op realm at that time. You have to collect three parts of a sword to kill a dragon. There's jumping across gaps. There's climbing ladders. There's enemies to dodge and kill. All of that regular kind of stuff. Kind of one of the twists that he put into it is that there are different weapons that you can find and collect, and you do keep an inventory of these. Certain enemies are only vulnerable to certain weapons. It's kind of in this period where that whole arcade adventure thing that we were talking about in our arcade adventure episode was starting to manifest in Britain. There was kind of this trend towards games that had a lot of action, particularly platforming action, but would also mix in some strategy and some puzzle solving. And this one is still mostly on the platform end, but it's got the inventory system. It's got some strategy and how you go after the enemies. So it's kind of moving into that arcade adventure realm. He finishes this game, he submits it around, and it ends up being published by Ocean Software through their Imagine Software label. Imagine Software had been an independent company a couple years earlier that had blown up big and then kind of literally blew up after that, but it had name recognition, so Ocean bought the Imagine Software brand and, and released some of their games on that. Wizardor comes out in 1985 and does pretty well for him. It's a decent enough hit. He is now established as one of these hot young bedroom coders that everyone can't get enough of. BBC Micro Game, we have to remember he is working on the BBC Micro because that's what he kind of grew up in. Topped the sales charts in BBC Micro for about six weeks or so. I mean, it was sizable hit in that realm but we have to remember that the BBC Micro had actually a pretty small install base. What was big on that platform wasn't necessarily big in terms of the most popular games on the ZX Spectrum or the Commodore 64. There's still no doubt that it's establishing him as uh, somebody to watch, and it is very successful on its platform. He did do a conversion of it then to the Spectrum, because that is a platform that just has a larger install base. Then he started working on a second game for Ocean that this time Ocean was going to publish under its own label called Striker's Run. Striker with a Y, of all things. This, again, is a game where you can really see the influence of what's happening in the coin-op realm, I think, because it's definitely more of a run-and-gun kind of game than his earlier platforming game. Obviously, at this period of time in the mid-1980s, run-and-guns are becoming very popular. It is on the BBC Micro, which can't necessarily do really fast action. I call it a run-and-gun. It's more of a walk-and-gun <laughs> because of the speed you can get away with. For the BBC Micro, it was impressive. I mean, that's the limitations of the hardware, not the limitations of the coder. Again, the BBC Micro is a platform that's a little starved for content by this point because most people have moved on. Striker's Run is a well-done game for the platform, and it is also definitely a hit. At this point, Chris Roberts' name is pretty well known in his native country, but he knows that he's kind of shoved himself into a corner. He needs to get off the Micro. It was never a very vibrant platform, and it is now a dying platform. 
he decides to refocus on the Commodore 64. He chooses the Commodore 64 over the ZX Spectrum. Well, first of all, by this time, I mean, even the Spectrum is starting to die as a platform. But more importantly, the Commodore 64 is not only popular in Britain, but it's popular around the world. And so he gets the sense that this is going to be a much larger market for his kind of games. He starts work on a game called Ultra Realm that is going to be a bit bigger and a bit more complex than the games he's done before. It's going to be very much in the arcade adventure mold. Really, it's going to be a little like Legend of Zelda in a lot of ways, though I don't think he was pulling on Zelda as an influence. This was before the NES had really made any inroads whatsoever in the United Kingdom. I think it's more pulling on the arcade adventure tradition of the United Kingdom which, of course, there were games that were very similar to Zelda in that tradition. And as we said in our Arcade Adventure episode, the Stamford Brothers are convinced that Miyamoto actually ripped off their mm-hmm. Attic Attack game when he was creating Zeldas. He's working on this top-down game. He wants it to be big. He's moving to a platform that has more capability, so he wants to do uh, an overhead view, a large world, lots of different enemies, storyline, exploration, some light RPG kind of elements, gathering gold and items and all of this stuff. Kind of a mix of of Legend of Zelda type things and arcade adventure type things. It's going to be great. At this point, he makes a very fateful move to the United States. See, his father had been at the University of Manchester. Then he got an offer of a tenured professorship at the University of Texas in Austin in 1986, just to put a time frame on it. His parents actually moved to Austin, Texas, so he can take that professorship. Chris Roberts did not go with them. He really loved Britain. He really loved Manchester. He loved his city. He he had no intention of leaving, and at this point, he was just finishing his A-levels, so he was going to go off to the University of Manchester and get on with his life. I mean, he got along with his parents just fine. It's just that he was going to stay in Britain. But he did decide that while he was making his game, while he was waiting to start the University of Manchester, that he might as well spend the summer in the United States with his family because he could work on his game there just as easily as he could work on it in Britain, and he had nothing else going on at the time until university started. So he comes to Austin for the summer and actually discovers that he quite likes it there. Of course, the weather's a little better. It's not all cold, wet, and rainy all the time. We Americans go crazy for English accents for whatever reason, so he found his Mancunian accent really helped him with the girls. Also, back in the 80s, this was a period of time when America was kind of a land of plenty. I mean, America's always been a consumer culture. Some would argue overly a consumer culture. We won't get into that. But the point that I'm making here is nowadays a lot more stuff is exported internationally. And it doesn't matter where you live with e-commerce and all the private shipping agencies and everything. You can have anything you want wherever you want. But at this time in the 1980s, it wasn't that way. And so kind of the American culture, the uh, things he could do and see and buy in America ended up being a real lure. He ends up never going back (laughs) to the United Kingdom after all and ends up settling in the Austin area. Anyway, he's working on this game Ultra Realm and he needs an artist. He does a little art himself. He's kind of interested in that. 
this is kind of the first game where he really needs to collaborate with an artist because he's working on a better platform with better graphics and he's trying to do this big impressive thing. Of course, Austin is a great city for this kind of thing because it has a real game culture. And it's not even just a computer game culture because we have to remember this Austin is the home of Steve Jackson games. Very well known for the GURP series and for the Munchkin card games a little later on. Austin has a very vibrant game community, and of course, Origin has ties there, and so that kind of expands into the computer game realm, and so there's lots of people running around that are involved in games in one way or another, either pen and paper games or computer games. He ends up getting in with an artist by the name that I know I'm going to butcher horribly, just because I'm not sure how he personally pronounces it. He gets in with an artist named Dennis Lubet. It's L-O-U-B-E-T. I don't know if it's Lube or Lobet or Lubet. I apologize. That's how it's spelled, L-O-U-B-E-T. Dennis Lubet has been freelancing in the tabletop world for a long time. He's also freelanced for Richard Garriott in the past. He actually drew the box art for Akalabeth all the way back in 1980. He's got contacts all over the place, and basically what happens is that Chris Roberts walks into a game store, a tabletop game store, not a computer game store, and saw this great drawing of a gladiator up on the wall and basically asked the owner, it's like, who made that? And he was like, oh, that's uh, Dennis Lubet. He was like, oh, cool, I need to get in touch with him. And the guy actually let him use his phone and called him right from the store and was like, hey, I'm working on a computer game and your art is great and can't we work together? Lubet was like, sure. Yeah, we can do that. It just so happened that this was the exact time that Origin was coming into Austin. Because we have to remember, we did an Origin episode. Origin was started in Texas, Houston to be exact. Then they went up to New Hampshire because Robert Gary at the CEO, his wife had a job there and it was just easier for the family. So they went up to New Hampshire. Most of the Texans that went up to New Hampshire just absolutely hated New Hampshire. So then you had this period of time where Origin was in a dual state of existence, where New Hampshire was still where most of the company was, but a small coterie of developers had gone down to Austin, Texas, so that they could basically get away from the New Hampshire winners and started up kind of development down there. So they're kind of in this dual structure now, but they're really starting to staff up in Austin. They're starting to build a presence there, and they're realizing as their games get more complicated that they need to start having more in-house staff in all facets of game production and stop using independent developers and independent contractors so much. Dennis Lubet has freelanced for Origin before and freelanced for uh, Garrett even before Origin. It just so happens about two weeks after he and uh, Roberts make this arrangement, Lubit gets hired on as the first full-time artist at Origin. He's hired in, then he tells Richard Garius and Dallas Snell, Dallas Snell being the person that's actually in charge of development in the Austin office at this period of time. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's great to be here. I'm glad to be part of the company. There is this one thing, though, that I'm committed to that I'm supposed to be working on that I should probably keep up with it if that's okay for this guy named Chris Roberts. And so he tells them about what Chris Roberts is doing. And they're like, hey, you should bring him in. Let's talk to this guy. They bring Chris in for a meeting. He had no idea who Origin was because you have to remember 
RPGs were not that big in Britain. There were a few semi-flailing attempts to get them in there, but for whatever reason, that's not something that ever made it in that country. So Origin, which was at this point still primarily known as the Ultima Company, didn't really have a presence in the United Kingdom. Unlike some of the other companies that did get very big over there, like Microprose or Electronic Arts, really didn't have a sense of what Origin was. But he came in, talked to Richard and to Dallas, and decided that he liked the people, he liked Austin, he liked the company. He thought it was kind of refreshing. The British market was very cutthroat. You had a model in the United Kingdom still where you had a lot of publishers that were just taking independent solicitations. There was less in-house development. So there were a lot of these small publishing houses all competing with each other. They were very cutthroat. Sometimes they were not always totally forthright with their developers. So coming into Origin and seeing these really down-to-earth, really nice, really collaborative people really turned him on to Origin as a company. So even though he also submitted Ultra Realm, which by this point had changed its name to Times of Lore, to a couple of the big publishers like EA and Broderbund and actually got offers for more money from Electronic Arts to publish the game, just because Origin was local and he really liked the people, he chose to go with Origin to publish his game. And so they actually publish Times of Lore in 1988. That's how he gets in with Origin. Times of Lore does fine. It's not a big hit at all. It probably does a little better than it probably deserved to. All I mean by that, it has nothing to do with it being a bad game. As I said, Origin was the ultimate company. It was a company known for making these big, deep, in-depth computer RPGs. Roberts theorizes, and this is probably true, that there was therefore an expectation that when they're releasing a game called Times of Lore that's top-down just like the Ultima games and very fantasy-oriented just like the Ultima games, has exploration and treasure and monsters and all of that, that it's going to be that kind of an RPG of the type that they like, similar to Ultima. Times of Lore is a very British game. It's more about action and adventure. It's more of an arcade adventure take on RPG elements than it is an in-depth Ultima kind of game. This is the kind of game that just was outside the realm of experience of your typical computer game aficionado in the United States at this time. You had an NES, it played Legend of Zelda, something like this would have maybe felt a little more familiar to you. There wasn't as much cross-pollination at that period of time. PC gamers tended to be a little older and want a little deeper games, whereas all of the action stuff was kind of on the NES, which was more of the 6- to 12-year-old market, a little younger audience. Not saying they never cross-pollinated. Obviously, some people had both systems. I know a certain someone I'm talking to right now that had both systems. Maybe. <laughs> there was some of that divide, so I think there was some disillusionment with Times of Lore from some of the people that bought it who were expecting an Ultima and didn't get it. Just kind of a difference in computer cultures between the United States and the United Kingdom. I say all of that as a way to set up what happens next. After that game, which does well, I mean, it's not a flop, it does well enough that Origin wants to continue this partnership. He starts working on a couple of different things. He starts on a sequel, because as I said, it, it wasn't a flop. 
So he starts working on Times of Lore 2, that he wants to be bigger and better, much more story, many more characters, subplots up the wazoo. Then he's also working on another game called Bad Blood. Bad Blood has this whole kind of post-apocalyptic thing going on. It's another top-down thing, but it's very much focused on action and adventure once again. There are cities that you can go to, NPCs you can interact with, there's story, you can get money and buy better weapons. The majority of it is really focused on combat and on action from a top-down view in this kind of large open world. It's very British in that sense. It's very arcade adventure in that sense. He decides that he really only has time to do one game, one of the two concepts. And so he decides to shelve Times of Lore 2 only because he has such big ambitions for it that he doesn't think he can get it done in a reasonable time frame. Ironically, Bad Blood ends up taking longer than he thought it would take. So as he put it himself in an interview, you know, he probably could have just done Times of Lore 2 and might as well have just done so. Instead, he does Bad Blood, and that was actually a pretty big failure. Why that is, it's impossible to know for sure, but Chris himself speculates that it was the worst of both worlds. So it was kind of in the vein of Times of Lore, but a lot of the people that bought Times of Lore were disappointed that it wasn't an RPG. So the Times of Lore buyers that saw he was making another game similar to Times of Lore were just turned off because they were disappointed by what they got the first time and they weren't going to do it again. But then the action fans, the people that might actually be interested in something a little more action-packed on the PC, saw that Bad Blood was coming from the Ultima company. They just kind of assumed it would be more of an RPG, which was not to their taste. It kind of didn't have an audience, if that makes sense, on the Commodore 64. Well, it had an audience, but it didn't really have the right presentation. Because as you said there, it's the Ultima company. I expect RPGs from Origin during this time period. And by having these games come out that are new and different, I expect an RPG. Oh, this must be a different kind of RPG. This must be a different kind of RPG. I don't want that. Yeah. I want my action game. Even if you put out an action game, if you don't market it right, or you are fighting an uphill battle going against the preconception, the thought process of, here's what I expect from this company. I'm not expecting an an arcade action game out of you. Why should I even have on my radar to check you for that kind of game? Exactly. You know, he's had one game that did fine. He's had one game that did terrible in the United States. He had some successes in Britain, of course, before that. At the same time, he started playing around with this idea of a space strategy game of some kind. At this point, he's calling it Squadron. He's got a few different influences for why he wants to try this. He was a huge science fiction nerd growing up, both in terms of reading and watching. Big Star Wars fan, big Star Trek fan. He enjoyed the original Battlestar Galactica television series when he was a kid. He's got this sci-fi background. In the computer game realm, because he was in Britain, he was exposed to Elite, especially since he was in Britain as a BBC microcoder because it first came out on the BBC Micro. So he'd played Elite, he'd enjoyed Elite, he 
liked the idea of doing something top-down with kind of a strategic element to it where you're invading and conquering planets. It was going to be action-y. Gauntlet was something that was actually pulling him in this direction of all things, only I think he's not very clear on that in the interviews, but only I think in the sense that it's a top-down action game with lots of stuff happening on the screen at once. So I guess that was kind of his original conception is do something kind of like Gauntlet, which he enjoyed, but sci-fi with ships instead because of his love of Elite and Star Wars, etc., then also a little more strategic as well to make it a little different. He was thinking in terms of having battleships moving around and invading planets. As he started doing the research, as he started immersing himself in science fiction literature and science fiction television and movies and started working with the graphics engine, he kind of discovered that there wasn't a lot of interesting stuff to work with in terms of big ships fighting each other in space. I mean, that's not to say that there's never been any sci-fi series about big ships fighting each other in space. The real focus has always been on fighters. Even in universes that feature gigantic capital ships, it seems like the action always revolves around the fighter pilots. The first shot of Star Wars is that incredible Star Destroyer that made everyone's jaw drop because they'd never seen anything that huge roll across the screen. But the final climactic battle isn't that Star Destroyer shooting at other big ships. It's a bunch of X-Wings making a run on the Death Star. I mean, that's kind of the paradigm of that kind of science fiction. He decided that he would focus on starfighters instead, because that just seems more in tune with what people like and what's out there. At the same time, he is exposed to a massively influential game on his process called Space Rogue that is currently under development at Origin by a fellow named Paul Newrath. We've talked about Newrath. We even talked briefly about Space Rogue in our Origin episode because, of course, New Wrath goes on to found Blue Sky and then things really, well, co-found what becomes Blue Sky, to be more exact, does Ultima Underworld and all this other influential stuff. Well, he also had a a bit of an influence on Chris Roberts at this juncture, too, because he's doing this game Space Rogue that we did talk about before. The interesting thing about Space Rogue is that it combines RPG elements and space combat action elements. It combines them kind of clunkily because the two sides of the game are pretty separate from each other. It's almost like they took a planet-based sci-fi RPG and a space combat game and smushed them together. It has both RPG elements and it has space combat elements. He does the space combat in 3D. Chris Roberts sees this, plays the game while it's under development, loves it, and starts really peppering Paul Newrath with questions about how he did the 3D and how this works and how that works. Space Rogue did not inspire what became Wing Commander in the sense that he was already moving in the direction of doing a space game. He was definitely inspired by Space Rogue and helped by Space Rogue to move from a top-down 2D, which had kind of been his thing, to a three-dimensional thing for the combat. I think some of the immersive elements of Space Rogue probably also appealed to him as well in terms of the universe building. 
now he knows he wants to do a 3D space game. Well, once you do that, you run into a problem very quickly. And that problem is how you do the graphics. Because we're still talking about the end of the 1980s here. Polygonal graphics do exist on the PC platform. And of course, he's going to be moving to the PC platform now because the Commodore 64 is on its last legs. The world's moving on. Only really in flight simulators because... In a flight simulator, you don't necessarily need it to be a fast action game. It can move a little slower, and your audience will be okay with that because they're more interested in the simulation than they are in the speed and the action. Plus, since flight simulators mostly take place in the sky, you don't have to render a full world. Obviously, these games have ground targets, but you'll notice in games from this time period that the ground is not very detailed because they're saving on polygons. Microprose and Spectrum Holobyte, with games like F-15 Strike Eagle and Falcon, were doing polygonal graphics in flight simulators, but they were flat-shaded, textureless polygons. This didn't really sit well with Chris Roberts. He wanted to put something on the market that was going to be better than the competition, and he felt that in terms of polygonal graphics, he could probably match what Microprose and Spectrum Holobyte were doing, but there was no way to really exceed it just because of the technological limitations of the day. While he's pondering how he wants to do this, because Space Rogue is just flat-shaded polygonal stuff too, he, he can't take an influence there. While he's thinking about what to do in this vein, he's exposed to the classic LucasArts, at this point I think still Lucasfilm Games, Flight Simulator Battle Hawks 1942 by Larry Holland, who later goes on to do the X-Wing series. Battle Hawks 1942 takes a completely different approach, where instead of rendering everything as polygons, it uses sprite-based art, but the sprites are rendered from multiple angles. You do multiple renderings of the same ship from different angles and sprites, Then the game engine, as that plane is moving around, it seamlessly switches between these different sprite drawings to give the illusion of three dimensions because you're seeing it from this angle and then as it moves, it seamlessly moves to a different sprite and so now you're seeing it from this angle. It gives the illusion of 3D without actually being 3D. And presumably you also have sprite scaling going on in order to make those sprites bigger and larger based on how close or how far away you are from whatever that target is. So if I'm closer to the ship, the sprite is scaled up. If I'm further away from a ship, it's scaled down. If I'm closer to a planet or a space station, likewise scaled up, scaled down. Yes, absolutely. This combination of sprite scaling and rotations and different angles on the sprites gives the illusion of a three-dimensional object without actually being three-dimensional. I mean, when you get really close to the object, the illusion is broken a little bit because, of course, you can see all the pixels and it's very clearly not three dimensions, but it's good enough and it allows you to do something that is more texturally detailed because... It's sprite art, so you can actually put art on it. It's not just flat-shaded, textureless polygons. You can do something that moves a little bit faster because even doing all the transformations and scaling between the different objects is not nearly so intensive as trying to render out a full polygonal world. Plus, he's set in space. 
even flight simulators like Battlehawks 1942 that don't do that much rendering detail on the ground. In a space game, you don't have to do any rendering detail on the ground. So <laughs> that makes it even better. He decides that he's going to use that approach to create this game. His goal is to create something kind of in the vein of the combat of Elite and Battlehawks 1942, mixed in with some great immersion. He's not to the point where it's a full interactive movie yet, but he always felt that things like lives and scores and menu screens and everything else were a distraction from the world that you're in. And he wanted to create something that was immersive that felt like you were really there. That kind of forms the basic for what Wing Commander becomes. That being specifically the fact that you are on a carrier when you start the game, you are in the barracks, and then you go to the crew lounge in order to interact with people and sort of get an idea of what might be going on. Then you go to a briefing, and you actually click on the door to choose where you go. And when you mm-hmm. want to save, you go back to the barracks. I forget exactly what it is, but you probably do like something like hit the showers and save or something like that. You sleep in a bed, yeah. So you click on your bunk, and that saves. There's an airlock door. And you click on the airlock door to exit the game. It's like you're never in a menu. You're always interacting with an object on the screen that has a logical purpose related to the action that you want to do. Analogous to the adventure games that you used to have back in the day. Think also like uh, Dune, the original Dune game took the same kind mm-hmm. of concept where you just clicked on doors, you clicked on this, that, and the other thing. You weren't really in menus per se. Right. From the very beginning, even before this is an official greenlit product, he's thinking along those lines of immersion, and that's part of what gets the product greenlit. Because when he first presented a demo of what he wanted to do, he had Dennis Lubit, his old companion, draw up a complete cockpit for the fighter that the player would be flying. He had really nice explosions. Just the visual impact of it really impressed Dallas Snell, who, as I said uh, earlier, was running Austin Development. When they saw that demo, they thought it just looked so great, and they thought, yeah, we got to make this. It's a game that really ends up having lots of little details like that that are, are really cool, the kind of things that you might not think about, you might not notice if they're not there, but just pull you in more because they exist. For instance, he did have that fully rendered beautiful cockpit and a different cockpit for all of the, every ship in the game. The flight stick of your character can be seen in that cockpit. The pilot's hand moves as you move your joystick. The pilot's head moves as you're doing different angles looking around different viewports of your of your cockpit. As your ship gets more and more damaged, some of the panels within your ship blow up and are just sparks and hanging wires. It's all of these things to make you feel like you're really in that cockpit, really out in space there. You know, really adds this extra layer of immersion. They decided to do uh, wingmates, and then they had you be able to talk to your wingmates in the bar. They didn't have that much personality in the first game. There really wasn't that much going on with them. There wasn't really any plot associated with them. But it was just about making you feel like you're part of this community of pilots and that you're on a real, living, breathing, working ship. That was kind of the goals of the game. In terms of putting the game together, 
This was a period of time when you were just starting to get much more buildup and much more specialization in the game development process. So they actually brought on a few specialists to help this come together. Dennis Lubit was the lead artist, and there were some other artists that worked on it as well. Chris Roberts is directing it, and he's also doing most a lot of the heavy lifting on the coding, though he didn't do quite all the coding himself. Roberts actually also brings in a writer, which at this point is really still quite unusual for games, especially games that aren't deep story-driven like RPGs and adventure games. I think the only other time that we brought up some writer being brought in is in the Brotoboond episode. Mm-hmm. Certainly Sierra is starting to bring in writing talent in the same period. It's something that's beginning, but it's not something that's common yet. He brings in a writer named Jeff George, who again was part of the tabletop industry. He had written modules and stuff. Part of the strength of what Origin is able to do in this time period is that they are drawing from a deep local talent well in tabletop gaming, pen and paper gaming. George was actually hired by Roberts to work on Times of Lore 2 because... This is the game where he decided he was really going to focus on story, and he decided that if he was going to have a really deep story, he needed to have a real writer. He knew Jeff George and asked him to come in. Of course, Times of Lore 2 never actually happened. He then had him actually write Bad Blood and collaborate with him on Bad Blood. After the Bad Blood collaboration, which was a successful one, the game wasn't successful, but the collaboration was successful, Origin actually saw the value of having a writer on staff. So he was actually hired as the first in-house writer-designer that Origin had. He was really the one that kind of helped flesh out the story and flesh out the world. Chris Roberts was actually going for something perhaps a little more morally gray and a little more complex in the terms of some of the ethical choices that the character might have to make. Jeff George kind of pulled him back on that. As he was putting in, you know, this is a flying action kind of game. Even though we want the world to be immersive and we want there to be some interesting story elements, the first thing that we're really going for here and the primary thing we're really going for here is we want to fly fast ships in space and shoot down bad guys. The kind of player that wants to fly fast ships and shoot down bad guys doesn't necessarily want to be worrying about the ethical choices of whether they're doing the right thing as they're shooting down these ships. You know, he wanted to bring it back more to a kind of Star Wars kind of feel where you're the starfighter pilot going up against the evil empire. You don't have to think about why you're blowing up those TIE fighters. You're just blowing them up because they're the bad guys. So it's kind of funny that it was the game designer wanting to go in a way more complex and the writer that wanted to go more simple. I think in this case, the writer's instincts were correct because it's it's not so much that he wanted to go more simple as he was thinking more coherently about how the gameplay and the story should work together. And he felt that Chris Roberts' way of doing the story would be a disconnect, if that makes sense. That does. The other thing is that Chris Roberts was actually going to have the player be part of a human empire. Jeff George was basically like, no, 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 no. In a sci-fi game, in a sci-fi universe, the term empire has a really bad connotation. If you say it's the Terran Empire or whatever they were going to call it, 
right away you're telling the player even before they loaded up the game that they're probably playing for the bad guys. And it can be fun to play for the bad guys. See TIE Fighter. That's not really what they're going for. So he said, no, it can't be an empire. And so that's why they settled on the Terran Confederation as the group that they're going to be involved in. In terms of who their opponents are going to be, a lot of Chris Roberts' inspiration for how he wanted to do his game was the Pacific Theater of World War II. His research drew him towards that. I also think, quite frankly, even though he hasn't said it, Battle Hawks 1942 probably drove him to that as well, because that game that I said was so influential on what he was doing was a Pacific Theater game. You know, he had started out with maybe being capital ships involved, so now he kind of had this idea that you're on a carrier and you're going out and you're dogfighting other ships and you're other fighters, and then you're also assaulting capital ships, which is akin to assaulting battleships and carriers and cruisers in World War II. So he has this whole Pacific theater thing in mind. So at that point, he very much, he and George very much model the sides on the American and Japanese forces in World War II. He decides that the antagonists are going to have a very militant kind of culture, similar to what the Japanese military culture was at that time. He decided that they would kind of have a warrior code, kind of Bushido kind of thing going on, again, very much taken from the Japanese. In terms of the actual shape that these protagonists would take, he was inspired very much by the military sci-fi stylings of Larry Niven, a very well-known sci-fi and fantasy writer that did a lot of military space opera-ish kind of series. The most famous of his works is probably the novel Ringworld. Even though they are not found in Ringworld, Ringworld kind of established a kind of universe that many of his stories are set in called Known Space, just the very generic name Known Space. A series of his stories in Known, Known Space were focused on what were called the Man-Kazin Wars. The Kazin were a race, essentially, of cat people. This is entirely, and Roberts himself has admitted this, this is no secret, this is entirely where Roberts gets the inspiration for the Kilrathi, is the Kazinti species that feature in these Man-Kazin War stories. I think he likes the feline aesthetic because it brings up this idea of ferocity and predatorness that kind of goes well with what he's thinking in terms of the militancy by bringing in the Japanese World War II experience, by bringing together this Japanese thing and this Kazinti thing from Larry Niven. He comes up with the Kilrathi, a rather vicious and ferocious and uh, militant group of feline warriors that also do kind of have a strange sense of honor on the side, though they are definitely much more black and white than, say, Klingons in Star Trek, which are also initially bloodthirsty and ferocious, but have that honorable side of them that allows them to slowly be developed more into protagonists as various Star Trek media went on. So he's got the Terran Confederation, he's got the Karathi Empire, World War II in the Pacific is a big influence. Larry Niven's military science fiction is an influence. The very uh, celebrated science fiction novel, The Forever War, 
by Joe Halderman is also a big influence on how he wants to do things, because the thing that is very interesting about The Forever War is even though it's a space opera and a military science fiction book, Halderman was a Vietnam veteran. What Haldeman brought to the Forever War was a very realistic sense of what it's like to be involved in a grueling war and a grueling combat. You know, it's not just all sunshine and rainbows and lightsabers in the Forever War. It's really based on what it feels like to actually be in combat. I think that that's where Roberts probably, even though he hasn't said this straight out, I think that's where Roberts probably gets a lot of his ideas about immersion and about living amongst your shipmates and getting a feel, even if it's a somewhat simplistic feel, of what it's like to actually be in combat and not just be an abstract game where you're given a mission briefing and go out and kill some things and then get your next mission briefing. That's kind of the Wing Commander aesthetic in a nutshell. The other big side of this, besides the fact that he decides to do these graphics in a way that allows him to do something faster and more interesting than some of the flight simulators, and the fact that he wants to do real writing and real immersion, is, of course, the presentation of the overall package and the technology. He feels really strongly that he wants to push this. He wants to have really top-notch detailed graphics for the time. He wants to have a dynamic score which is something that is very new at this time. And what we mean by dynamic score is you have a series of pieces that seamlessly flow amongst one another as the situation changes. You're on patrol in your ship. You come to a nav point where nothing's really happening. In Wing Commander, you actually don't just fly around in one single contained space like you would in like X-Wing or TIE Fighter. You actually go to nav points. And so you go to a nav point and have or don't have encounters there then you go to the next nav point and it's the same. It's not open-ended. It's all scripted. It's the same each time what's there. A lot of it is based around going on patrol and you're moving from place to place. You get to a nav point. There's nothing there. You've got nice, mostly calm music. Then, oh no, here comes the enemy. Enemy sighted. The music ramps up in intensity. Then one of the enemies actually gets on your tail and is about to get missile lock on you. Now there's a really intense piece of music. You evade him. You kill him. The music goes back to peaceful Dynamic soundtracks like that, I mean, they're common today. You also get a little bit of a victory thing whenever you kill one of the ships, sort of like a little victory jingle. Yes, you do. Absolutely, you do. I'm not talking about anything that's unusual in this day and age. I'm not describing anything you wouldn't know, but that just simply wasn't done back then because it resource-intensive is the short answer on that. He wants to do all of these things. He wants to be bold and ambitious. The problem is he's doing this on the PC platform. While the PC platform is, at this point, able to do a lot, we're talking about 1989 when he's in the process of developing this game, even though we're talking about a platform that can do a lot, we're talking about a platform that has a long history of backward compatibility and a long history of tailoring your game Not quite for the lowest common denominator, because believe me, nobody was tailoring their games specifically for four-color CGA graphics, but really hitting a middle-of-the-road standard. If you take advantage of too much of the power of the latest systems, you're leaving behind too many people that have not upgraded to the latest processor, to the latest RAM capacity, etc., Most PC games, even in the late 80s, are 
fairly primitive compared to what they could be, even on the PC platform that wasn't optimized for gaming, because of that move to the middle. Well, it was during the period that he was developing this game that Roberts was at a trade show or a conference or something where Sid Meier, who before Civilization was known as the king, one of the kings of flight simulators, Sid Meier was showing off the latest Microprose flight simulator, F-19 Stealth Fighter. F-19 really represented a pinnacle of 1980s flight simulation in terms of its graphical sophistication. Microprose made a decision to go all out and balls to the wall on that product in terms of its presentation and not worry about if that would exclude a certain portion of the population. I think their logic, which is a pretty sound logic, is that the type of consumer that is into flight simulators is the type of consumer that is into as much fidelity as you can get. Even today, it's not as big a community as it was, but even today you have your flight stick and rudder pedal crowd out there in the world, <laughs> you know. Hotas setup. So you have uh, the throttle, the uh, stick, and sometimes the flight pedals. Yep, exactly. The logic there was our audience, even though not every PC owner is going to have a state-of-the-art rig, our audience is way more likely to have a state-of-the-art rig than anyone else because they are always craving the most realistic and most immersive experience they can get, and that requires them to have the best computer they can get. F-19 Stealth Fighter was really impressive for the time. It put a lot of pressure on systems at the time. and It became a big hit anyway. Sold hundreds of thousands of copies for Microprose. This demonstrated to Chris Roberts, you know, we don't have to play it so safe. We can put some impressive stuff in here. We can cram things in here, and it will be okay. People will buy it. Or they'll upgrade their systems to make it work. Exactly. They made a conscious decision this is going to be a VGA game. Don't worry about those people that are still on EGA graphics that are still 16-color people. Certainly don't worry about those poor slobs who think CGA is a great idea and live their whole life in Cyan. We're going to do a VGA game. We're going to do a game that takes advantage of the latest Intel processors. Now, you weren't required to have one of the latest Intel processors to run it. You could theoretically downgrade it and run it on a slower processor and in so doing have an inferior experience. Don't worry about that. We're going to use that full 640K of memory that is accessible before you get into all of the expanded and extended memory tricks that people use to get around that barrier during this time period. We're going to make use of every last ounce of power we can out of that state-of-the-art IBM PC. If your computer can't handle it, well, then you better get a new one. Or upgrade. Exactly. They do a lot of impressive things. They do some really impressive cutscenes. Another artist named Glenn Johnson, who had a background in comic books, did a lot of the detailed backgrounds that they did. They did rotoscoping for some of the scenes. One of the more impressive animations is after your briefing, all of the pilots run off to their ships to prepare to launch, and there's actually these running silhouettes in the foreground in those cutscenes. Uh, it's pretty prosaic today, but at the time, it was truly impressive, and they actually used rotoscope animation to do that. 
they get that dynamic soundtrack in. They contract with the fat man, George Sanger, who was making a name for himself in this time period as a contract musician as game sound systems were becoming more impressive. Sanger and one of his associates, Dave Govett, create the score. They're told that they should do something very space operatic, you know, something very Star Wars, something very Battlestar Galactica. Roberts gives them that direction, but then the fat man and Dave Govett compose the pieces, and they compose them very carefully. I mean, you have your big title song and whatnot. Those don't have to be composed so carefully, but the combat music was composed very carefully in very, very short tracks that were all interchangeable with each other so that they could be plugged in to the dynamic sound system that the origin people came up with and swapped in and out on the fly in a way that no matter how you played them together, it it created something cohesive and something that felt like it was planned out. You know, it's almost like jazz, improv jazz, where you've got your key signature and you've got your tempo and, and then you move freely within those very loose confines. Almost like making little jazz riffs, even though the the style of the music itself was not jazz. You've got all of these elements coming together. You've got the immersive elements. You have the flight model elements. You have the music elements. The game makes its big debut at the 1990 Consumer Electronics Show. It becomes one of the absolute hits of the show. At this time... It is going under the name Wing Leader. He had originally called it Squadron. Now he's calling it Wing Leader. The game wasn't finished at that point. They were still frantically trying to put everything together, but the basic flight model was in place. The basic flight graphics were in place, and people could see, okay, this is going to be something really big. The cinematics weren't there yet. The immersive elements weren't there yet. But just the gameplay was so solid and got positive feedback. At this point, they discovered that they really shouldn't use the name Wing Leader. There were too many games that had similar names. I don't think there was actually a Wing Leader, but one example that they gave was Microprose had a game called Wing Man. It felt too similar, so they decided to break it into two words instead of a compound word like Wing Leader and come up with something a little more distinctive after that CES show. They did their trademark search, discovered that Wing Leader would be a little dicey, and changed it to Wing Commander. Yeah, now we've got Wing Commander. They're on the rush to fix it. I should mention one other person at this point that was involved in the game. Origin was using a producer model. In this case, there were actually co-producers. Chris Roberts was a producer on the game, but they also put Warren Spector on the project. Warren Spector is kind of semi-legendary in the games industry these days. He got his start in the Austin pen and paper scene at Steve Jackson Games, just like everybody else, as so many people did at Origin. That's that strong background. He actually went off to TSR after that and managed products in various Dungeons & Dragons lines for a while, then came back to Austin and he joined Origin. Spectre at this point is not really a computer game programmer, and he's not even really a computer game designer at this point. But what he is is somebody that has a lot of experience getting lots and lots of projects to completion because at TSR, it was really kind of crazy back in those days. This is the period of time when TSR was cannibalizing itself, essentially. They had too many product lines, too many products, more than any one person could ever hope to buy. The product process at TSR was really you had like a dozen or so people 
working on a hundred products all at once. I mean, a lot of these are really short products, like little 16 or 32 page adventure modules. The logistics of it is somebody that was overseeing this, like Spectre, were just so complicated. And the funny thing is, Spectre has always said he thought he knew what complicated project management was from that experience, and then he got into the computer game industry. Because <laughs> <laughs> even though the number of products you were overseeing was smaller, at that point, the team sizes are much larger because at TSR, you're probably just talking about a single author and a single artist working on a small adventure module. A bigger rule set would have more people, but you're talking about one or two people working on a lot of projects at once, and that's complicated, but nowhere near as complicated as like dozens of people working on a small number of projects at once because the coordination between individuals is just that much trickier. It set him up well to do this kind of thing, and as Origin is transitioning to bigger teams, Warren Spector is absolutely an invaluable part of shaping how Origin grows and changes. He was a big part of the success of Ultima 6, not because he did much actual work on Ultima 6, but because as a producer of the game, and this being the first Ultima game that really had a large team of people doing things instead of Garriott doing everything himself— he was able to keep that development process smooth. So they threw him on Wing Commander after that. So he was the producer of Wing Commander, but he didn't have any role in the development of the game. He wasn't instrumental in the creative side of it. He was more instrumental yes. in the project management side of it. Exactly. Chris Roberts took all the creative lead and Warren Spector took all of the project management lead. That ended up being a good team to get this big game over the finish line and get it completed. Wing Commander comes out in September 1990. Back in those days, 100,000 units was still considered a big hit, like a massive hit in the computer game space. Wing Commander does like 100,000 units in the first month. It does really well. It's a really big game in terms of its success. It's on another level from what had really been done at the PC at that time. And I think the choice to focus on latest generation hardware was a big part of that. Now, like I said, you could run it on older hardware, but it really demanded a 386 processor to really get a good experience out of it. You could run it on a 286. I think you can even technically run it on an 8088. I think technically the system requirements said that. You really needed that 386. It would be even better if you got yourself one of those fancy math coprocessor chips that Intel made for the 386. And if you really, really wanted to experience the game in all of its glory, the 486 had just come out as well. But don't run it on a Pentium. That doesn't work. Well, you can. You just have to use a little program called MoSlow. Yes, indeed. Funny story about doing horrible things to computers. Complete tangent, but that's what we're here for. I was introduced to the series through Wing Commander 3. I played Wing Commander 3 first, and then I bought Wing Commander 1 and 2. So by this time, you know, I had a Pentium. I wasn't playing it on a 486. A lot of these older games, they didn't put a limit. They just kind of assumed the best processor of our time can barely run this game. So there's not going to be a speed problem. So they never put a limit on how many clock cycles you could do on the game or whatever. There's a lot of games from this time period that if you try to run them on a modern machine, they're literally unplayable because the modern hardware can run them so fast 
that it just runs them at the speed it can run them because they didn't put any limiters in because they didn't think that would be an issue. This is how you get things where certain games where they're rendering cutscenes or even in gameplay where it just goes so fast you do one step and because of the way it's rendering at almost 240 frames per second, 300 frames per second, it goes, well, you held down the forward button, but you just tapped it. That registered in the game as moving for 582 frames. So you will move 582 (laughs) frames that way. And then you go, ah! Yep, no no locked frame rates. So even on a Pentium, Wing Commander became unplayable. Now, as Jeff alluded to, people did release utilities, the most famous of them being MoSlow, which basically commanded your processor to only run (laughs) at a certain speed. Now, Alex did eventually find MoSlow. But young innocent Alex did not know of this slow when he first got Wing Commander. All he knew was that Wing Commander was unplayable. However, young Alex did discover, accidentally, I mean, I don't even remember how I discovered it, but it was accidental. Young Alex did discover that if he hit the reset button when the computer was right in the middle of its initial boot-up process, that confused the computer enough, and I don't know the technical side of this, That somehow confused the computer enough that at that point the computer would run really, really slowly compared to how it was supposed to run. That level of slowness made Wing Commander playable. Before I discovered MoSlow, I did the very bad thing for my computer of whenever I wanted to play Wing Commander, I would power it up, and as it started its boot-up process, I would immediately hit the reset button (laughs) to play the game. Yeah, issues there. (laughs) <laughs> Thankfully, I discovered MoSlow soon enough that I didn't permanently bork the computer by doing that. But that's just one of those interesting stories of being a kid in the 90s trying to play computer games, which was on the IBM PC, which was always a struggle in one form or another. Autoexec.bat, IRQ Hell. Which one uh-huh. of these wonderful sound cards is not my sound card? <laughs> yes. And uh, processor speed issues when playing older games. So anyway, the better your hardware, the better your experience you had, which really pushed upgrading to 386s and even 486s. The combination of graphics and speed were something that really had not been seen before in a flight simulator. We'll put Battlehawks 1942 in the show notes. Even just look at something like Battlehawks 1942 side-by-side with Wing Commander. And there's only two years separation between these two games coming out, 88 and 90. Battlehawks 1942... Now, granted, it's propeller-based planes rather than spaceships, so that accounts for some of the slowness. It's a slower game. Even though he does this trick with the pixels, the pixelated aircraft are still pretty primitive and pretty rough-looking. You know, you put Battlehawks 1942 and Wing Commander side-by-side, and you'd swear it was a whole new generation of hardware rather than just a two-year separation on the same piece of equipment. It was just like nothing ever seen before. The music was like nothing really ever seen before in a PC game. I mean, there'd been some awesome tunes on the SID chip, on the Commodore, and the Amiga could hold its own as well. But just on a PC, which was primarily known for bleeps and bloops, this is the very beginning of the Sound Blaster era. So if you have a better sound card, like a Sound Blaster or a Roland or whatever else was available back then... You got some great music, and you know, they even played that up because when you first boot up the original Wing Commander, the first thing you see is this logo screen where there's a conductor at a podium and an orchestra is tuning up. 
That's even before the title screen for Wing Commander itself. It's saying right up front, this is a multimedia experience and you have not seen anything like this before, especially on a PC. I think it's a very important game because I think that move towards a more multimedia environment is laying the groundwork for some of the other amazing things that other companies do. Now, I'm not saying that Ultima Underworld or Doom or these games that really push the fast-paced, tech-savvy action on PC are influenced by Wing Commander. I don't think they're influenced by it on a creative level. Wing Commander was one of the first games that got people upgrading their PCs just to play the latest games. And I think that culture of expecting and being okay with the idea that we're going to make a game that you really want a top-of-the-line PC for, and it's okay that we're not making compromises, the people will come. I think a lot of that idea and culture comes from Wing Commander. If you program it, they will upgrade. Exactly. There's some real truth to that. I made that point, of course, in our Top 100 Influential Games episode because I put Wing Commander in there. I do think that it has an outsized influence for that reason alone, even aside from how it may have influenced future flight or space simulators specifically, which, again, became kind of a really hot thing in the middle of the 90s and then kind of petered out as people didn't want to deal with joysticks anymore. Of course, Wing Commander continued on for multiple iterations, going more and more multimedia. I think the biggest one was the full video during the Sillywood era with Wing Commander 4, if I recall correctly. Or is that 3? Yeah, yeah, 3 and 4 both. I mean, 3 was the first one, but 4 also did that as well. You know, they get there incrementally, and really it starts with Wing Commander 2. Wing Commander 2 is the first one in the series where they really start thinking about, let's create a real story. The first game was all about immersion. Chris Roberts even then was interested in story, but there's so much that you have to work on in that first game. You're getting the flight model together. You're getting the ship graphics together. You're creating the aesthetics of the world. You've got this interactive music thing you've never done before. There's a lot going on in a very, very narrow time frame. While they got the immersion part of it, the story part of it was not nearly so well developed. After Wing Commander was a hit, Origin wanted Wing Commander 2 as soon as possible. Now they finally have something besides Ultima. They are no longer the Ultima company. They are the Ultima and Wing Commander company. And their problem has always been that the Ultima games are always going to sell well for us, we know that, but what do we release while we wait for Richard to finish the next one? It's really just a challenge of how do I break out of the preconceptions for my company. And make money in between the big hits. (laughs) Both of those things. Yeah, they want a sequel as soon as possible. I mean, they're not going to rush it, but they want a sequel quickly. There's a feeling that they don't necessarily have as much time to advance the flight model and that side of it very much if they're going to get another game out quickly because physics and AI and all of that are hard. Not that they aren't going to improve them. Wing Commander 2 has a much better AI for the enemy pilots, for instance, than Wing Commander did. But it feels like there's not as much time to innovate on that side. So let's really focus on the world and the story and how we can do that. 
Meanwhile, Chris Roberts, because of his success on Wing Commander, is actually promoted to a new position as Director of New Technologies for Origin. Chris Roberts is going to produce Wing Commander 2, but he doesn't have the same time to direct it and program it as he did with Wing Commander 1 because he's taking on bigger responsibilities. This is the point where another critical individual enters the story. He actually worked a little on Wing Commander, but his work on Wing Commander was kind of just around the edges. He wasn't centrally involved. That is a person who at the time went by the name of Steve Beeman. She is now Stephanie Beeman today. Beeman, like Jeff George, like Warren Spector, like so many others, got her start at Steve Jackson Games. I cannot emphasize enough how important Steve Jackson Games was to the way Origin developed in the second part of its life. In the earlier Houston and New Hampshire phase, there wasn't much overlap, though they knew each other some. But in the Austin phase, so many of the important people at Origin came from uh, Steve Jackson Games, and Stephanie Beeman was one of those. Beeman had been working on other projects during Wing Commander, though he was brought in to do some of the dogfight choreography, some of the AI and flow of the fights in Wing Commander because they needed some extra help. For Wing Commander 2, he steps into the director's chair. Really, even though the Wing Commander series is kind of thought of as Chris Roberts' series, and rightly so, because he obviously created it, the second game is really more Stephanie Beeman's game than Chris Roberts' game, even though Chris was still the producer He was still running budgets. He was still in charge of the overall vision. If Beeman did something that he didn't feel fit with the aesthetic of the Wing Commander universe, he could veto it. But the second one is really Beeman's game. There are a few enhancements that came in right away. First of all, as I said, sound blasters were coming out in this time period. Beeman started experimenting with a sound blaster just to see what she could do with it and started playing around with speech a little bit and realized that they could actually do a little bit of digitized voice sampling using a sound blaster. So they actually put a limited amount of speech in Wing Commander 2. It's only in certain cutscenes. It's not the whole game. It was a separate kind of speech module because they knew not everyone had sound cards that could support that. The speech was not required to play the game. Everything was still subtitled as well. The other thing that she discovered, though, that actually Chris discovered in its role as director of new technologies, was a new program called Autodesk 3D Studio. Autodesk is a company that was already making a name for itself in computer-assisted design, AutoCAD being their big program there. They were also getting involved in these other 3D modeling programs and development packages because this was a period of time when 3D modeling both in the business sector and in the game sector was becoming a bigger and bigger thing. So they came out with their 3D Studio program. Chris saw it, fell in love with it, and thought this would be great for the next Wing Commander. So they actually rendered all of their graphics, not just their ship and uh, space station graphics, but even their cutscenes and whatnot in 3D Studio. Now, they still used that same technique that they used before, where you're seeing sprites from various angles. But because they rendered these as 3D models and then rendered them down to the sprite art that they were using in the game, they were cleaner, smoother, they had better lighting effects, and they could also do different angles 
very quickly. They didn't have to do a whole new sprite art every time they decided that another angle would look cool in the game. They could just take their original 3D model and render it from a different angle, and they had what they needed. That was kind of the biggest thing that changed on that side of things. It allowed for much more impressive-looking cutscenes, made for nicer-looking ships. But overall, it was kind of the same kind of game as the first one, though they added some wrinkles to make it more interesting. For instance, there were capital ships in the first game. Capital ship fights in the first game were not really that interesting. There's a lot of similarities to them, really, uh, to Battlehawks. I think he must have been partially inspired by that. In the first game, you approach a capital ship. It shoots out flak. The flak is generally very easily avoidable. Then you make strafing runs and missile runs and destroy it, very similar to carrier bombing runs in, say, Battlehawks 1942. Well, to add another level of tension to this one, they actually added the concept that a new shield technology has been developed, because this game actually takes place 10 years after the first game, called phase shields that basically make a ship invulnerable unless you lock your ordnance into the exact phase that the shield is in at any given time as it's modulating. That allows you to just ignore the shield entirely and blow up the ship. Capital ships could only be blown up by torpedoes, and torpedoes needed a long lock-on period to figure out the phase modulation pattern of the shield. Capital ship runs in those missions you were doing them became a lot more intense because you're having to point yourself straight at the ship, leave yourself mostly still and vulnerable while you're waiting the 30 seconds or 15 seconds or whatever it was to achieve target lock, so that you can blow up that ship. So that was more exciting. In order to compensate for the fact that you had to be a sitting duck for that period of time, they also introduced turrets into the game, which hadn't existed in the first game, where in the back of your ship or on certain ships on the sides as well, you had turrets that you could use to shoot at enemies coming at you. Those turrets did not run automatically. They didn't have, like, turret gunners with their own AI. You actually had to switch your viewpoint into one of the turrets and control them yourself. So that was some more sophisticated gameplay that they brought in. But at the end of the day, gameplay was very similar to the original Wing Commander. Where they really deepened things was in the story. Once again, they brought in a writer to take care of that story aspect of things by the name of Ellen Guan. I assume I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Again, my apologies if I'm not. It's G-U-O-N. Ellen Guan actually became Ellen Beeman. I think she's kept the Beeman name. I don't know what's happened to them in terms of, you know, Steve transitioned to Stephanie and, and all of this. So I don't know their personal history. It's, it's not important for the podcast, but she was Ellen Guan at the time, and then she became Ellen Beeman. She had actually worked as a writer at Sierra and was also a published author. She had published a novel called Night of Ghosts and Shadows. She had collaborated with Mercedes, uh, the science fiction fantasy author Mercedes Lackey on a couple of things. It even worked in uh, children's television as a freelancer for a time. She had a lot of background with writing, and bringing Ellen on really allowed them to deepen the characters and deepen the plot. They actually thought long and hard about each character and who they were, what their personalities were, and what role they would serve in the story. Instead of doing the move-from-room-to-room thing that you did in the first game, they kept the immersive atmosphere and that they tried to avoid menus and whatnot. When it was time to watch a cutscene, you would click on a single door, and then those cutscenes would happen in various parts of the ship, depending on what the cutscene was about. You weren't just moving from room to room. 
with a choice of only like two rooms as you did in the first game. At this point, they were really creating something that was more like an interactive cartoon, a cartoon that happened to be broken up by flying missions with more complex plot and more complex characters and higher quality animation thanks to Autodesk 3D Studio. So that's Wing Commander 2. It was a big hit as well. It's kind of funny. The Wing Commander games may have actually played a role in Origin having real problems because these were ambitious games and Wing Commander 2 especially came on a lot of discs. One story has it that part of the reason that Origin started losing money and needed EA to buy them is because the upfront cost of making all of those discs was ridiculously expensive and they were shipping so many copies. Eventually, you recoup your money on that, but upfront, it was a huge expense and that's part of what got them worried that they wouldn't be able to keep up with what they were doing. Obviously, CD was just around the corner to make those problems go away, but it wasn't here quite yet when Wing Commander came out at the very end of 1991. So already you can see that. It's, it's insane. Wing Commander came out in September of 1990. Wing Commander 2 was originally supposed to come out in June of 1991. It did end up getting delayed because that's nuts. It did come out in like December instead. But that was a really rapid development cycle, which is why they couldn't innovate in every area like they might have wanted to. <laughs> After Wing Commander 2, of course, the company gets bought by Electronic Arts. Chris Roberts is still very ambitious in the way that he wants to grow this series. At this point, they're getting Silicon Graphics workstations, very powerful. That's kind of what's in vogue in this time period, the same time period they're starting to be used to do advanced effects in movies like Jurassic Park. There's now enough power in PCs and power in development workstations that Chris Roberts thinks they can go all in at this point and actually do live action. He's frustrated by the limitations of animation, especially in this time period. By this, I mean computer game animation as opposed to animated cartoons. He doesn't feel that they can quite convey the full range of emotions. Wing Commander is remarkable for what it's able to do with computer animation for this time period. When they're making the faces even in the original Wing Commander, they did lip matching and facial expression matching. Now, it's not perfect lip syncing. Basically, the 10 or 12, however many it is, mouth shapes, basic mouth shapes that are used to form most letters and letter combinations, they actually drew every single one of those and drew facial expressions to match every single one of those. Then when you were talking to characters, both their mouths and the rest of their faces separately from each other would animate in a way that somewhat resembled what they were saying. Remember, except for in set situations in Wing Commander 2, they weren't actually speaking dialogue out loud. It was, it was all subtitle. It was one of the better attempts at making a person look like they were talking for the time, even though, again, today it looks comically primitive. Roberts is trying to push beyond those limitations. He really wants to push beyond those limitations now that they've got the Silicon Graphics workstations, now that they've got the financial backing of EA... And now that people's computers continue to get better and better, Pentium systems, etc., he feels it's time to take that leap. Wing Commander 3, Heart of the Tiger, is really the most ambitious, probably, game in the entire series. I mean, the first one's ambitious just for establishing everything. But Wing Commander 3 is probably the most ambitious because they're going to go to a full 3D flight model, full 3D game engine, and they're going to go to actors in all the roles. 
Chris Roberts primarily takes responsibility for the movie side of the production. He ends up directing it basically by accident. I mean, he was interested in doing it, obviously, but when they were first putting this thing together, they needed to do some test footage. Roberts ends up directing the test footage that they're doing. Basically, it snowballs from there into, you know, why doesn't Chris just direct the thing? The gameplay side, then, is primarily managed by a different individual named Frank Savage. Savage is a younger guy. He was actually somebody that was introduced to Wing Commander when it came out and fell in love with Wing Commander as a player. He was working as a miner, of all things, but, you know, he had aptitude for the computer side of things. He loved Wing Commander, so he ends up applying at Origin and getting a job there. Frank Savage directs the game, the flight space sim side of the game. Chris Roberts directs the movie side of the game. They get a large budget for it. They get a $4 million budget for it, which is very large for a game in that time period. They're going to shoot in green screen. Blue screen was still somewhat more common at that time than green screen was, but they had already long established that the Terran Confederation standard issue uniforms were blue. Blue screen wasn't going to cut it on this particular production. They were doing green screen at a time when blue screen was still more common. They decided that they were going to do this like a real movie. They went through a real casting director in California that had cast real movies. Had that casting director read with real actors to find the roles. The one person that he had in mind specifically from the very beginning was actually Mark Hamill for the role of the protagonist. The protagonist is named Christopher Blair. Funny story. So the protagonist did not have a name in the first two games because the idea is it's you. They had to give him an animated face. So even though the idea is it's you, the you is still a typical 20-something white guy. They didn't want to give him a name because that would spoil some of the immersion. The character was informally known around the company as Blue Hair because his hair was black, but because of the way it was drawn, it kind of had a bluish tinge to it. So they just called him Blue Hair. Now they needed a name for the character because other actors are going to be interacting with him and it's going to be really hokey if no one ever says his name. They got around that in the original game by people would just call you by your call sign and you would give yourself your call sign. They still let you choose your own call sign in Wing Commander 3, but since every bit of dialogue was voiced, they had to have a name for you. They named him Christopher Blair because Blair is a shortening of blue hair. Fun fact. Interesting. Uh Uh-huh. He wanted Mark Hamill for the role. Obviously, there was name recognition, but he also wanted somebody, and I mean, this is the way he put it. It almost sounds insulting when he puts it this way, but he wanted somebody he felt could be bland. (laughs) Um, You know, Mark Hamill obviously became very well known for his voice acting later as the Joker. He never quite took off as a star from Star Wars. I mean, obviously, he was a known name. People knew who he was. He made lots of money yada, 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 because he played Luke Skywalker, but his career didn't take off like Harrison Ford's did. He was kind of seen as this kind of, he was fine, but he didn't just jump out at you as a person. I don't say any of that to insult Mark Hamill, who's a wonderful actor and a great voice actor. I'm just kind of explaining the logic based on what Chris Roberts has said himself about his choice. He felt that Blair was a character that could act credibly and could hold his own with scene partners without dominating the scene so much that the player couldn't still imprint some of his own personality on what was going on. 
it was kind of this weird thing where he still wanted the player to be immersed in the game, even as the player's character is a distinct character being played by a real actor, if that makes sense. That makes sense. He wanted Mark Hamill for the role and he got him. The rest of the roles, obviously they got some big names in fandom circles for some of the other roles. John Rice davies uh, who had been Asala in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade uh, to great effect. Malcolm McDowell, who was very well known for Clockwork Orange and stuff like that. He hadn't killed Kirkhoff yet. Still a very known, very respected actor uh, as Admiral Tolwyn. There was a bit of controversy because they actually cast a well-known porn star, Ginger Lynn Allen, as the chief mechanic and one of two potential love interests for our protagonist. Chris Roberts denies that they did that for the notoriety. You know, the way he puts it, you know, she auditioned and she was the best one for the part. Were they thinking really thinking about the notoriety some and he's just too embarrassed to say it? I mean, that's possible. You know, she does hold her own with the other actors, even though she was a porn star. She doesn't come across, at least in my opinion, as a less credible actor than any of the others. In fact, she's a better actor than some of the other minor characters. Certainly gives some credibility to her being a good actress, and we should just leave it at that. Exactly. They got some other character actors uh, to play some other roles. This is kind of what sets Wing Commander apart from most of the other interactive movies of the time period. If you look at The Seventh Guest, if you look at Phantasmagoria, if you look at Mist to the extent that it has actors, I mean, it's really just the Miller brothers playing Atreus and the children, and they're barely in it. When you look at the acting that's done in other interactive movies at this time, you don't recognize anyone on the screen. Maybe they get a big star occasionally to play the main role, but you don't recognize the other actors on the screen. The thing that sets Wing Commander apart is, yeah, they got Mark Hamill. Yeah, they got Malcolm McDowell. That's great. But the minor roles, a lot of them are people that it's like, oh, wait, I saw him as a guest star in that television show once. People that aren't big names, but they were getting real actors in every role. Of course, Tom Wilson is another one that I should mention who was Biff in Back to the Future and was chosen to embody the role of Maniac, which had been in the first two games. Kind of a a wilder, less disciplined, troublemaking kind of rival to your character. Tom Wilson did a very good job in that role as well. They brought in real actors, which I think gave it a lot more credibility than other interactive movies at the time. It felt more credible as a production. The gameplay and movie integration in it is not really seamless. It's kind of like there's really good flight missions and the flight model's interesting. And then in between, you do these cutscenes that aren't necessarily very involved in what's going on in the flight game. Part of that's probably because Roberts was overseeing the one and Savage was overseeing the other and there wasn't necessarily someone thinking about the full integration. It's a really good game, quite frankly. I think it's one of the ones that holds up from the period. Whether they really needed to go interactive movie to be effective, I don't know, but they don't embarrass themselves with the movie portions. The game has a decent enough plot. The flight model's really quite good. I mean, the gameplay is really quite solid. That's Wing Commander 3. It's a massive hit for Electronic Arts which causes them to want to turn around uh, very quickly on a Wing Commander 4. Wing Commander 4, I like it. A lot of people feel it's a letdown. They didn't really advance the combat at all. They didn't have time. EA wanted a sequel very quickly. They focused all their efforts instead on upgrading the cinematic portions. I think Wing Commander 4 has a deeper and darker story, which is nice. They had a much bigger budget, $12 so they built real sets. They didn't just shoot everything in front of a green screen. That was also nice. 
many of the actors from the first game returned. Uh, new roles were also filled by notable people. John Spencer, who uh, was well-known for his role on TV in L.A. Law and would later become well-known for The West Wing, but this was before The West Wing, played a major character. They got other character actors to fill other roles. He had a more morally ambiguous plot. Chris Roberts finally got to do that, something that had been on his mind since the first game. I think it succeeds in telling a story, and I think it succeeds in having missions that serve that story. The flight model and the gameplay is a little bland compared to the other games. You can tell they didn't really pay as much attention to that. Sort of like Wing Commander 2. So they weren't able to upgrade much in Wing Commander 2, but Wing Commander 2 still had a very compelling flight model, and it was a better flight model than 1. With 4, they really didn't change anything about the flight model from 3. People kind of consider that part of it a step backwards. So if you're in it primarily for the space combat, then it is a disappointment because there's too many cutscenes and too little interesting gameplay. If you're there for the story, and I'm often there for the story in games, then I'm like, yeah, that's fine, whatever, and, and I like it. It's a little more divisive on that score. Of course, doing these two games made Chris Roberts realize that what he really wanted to do is get into movies. In the interim, before that, he leaves Origin, his contract's up, he had to sign a contract to stay at EA a certain amount of time when EA bought the company because EA was buying it for the talent behind Ultimate Wing Commander and they didn't want that talent to run off. After his contract is up, he leaves, founds his own studio, he stays in games a while longer, but then goes off to make movies. And I'm not just talking about the terrible Wing Commander movie that we won't discuss and I've never seen and refuse to ever watch in my life because Wing Commander is near and dear to my heart and I don't want to watch it, you know violated with a splintered broom handle by its own creator. He also actually becomes a producer and produces some movies that have nothing to do with Wing Commander before coming back to games and becoming even more controversial on Star Citizen, which is its whole different can of worms that we won't get into here. Suffice it to say, Wing Commander 4 is the real end of the series. After Roberts leaves, they try to kickstart another round of games with Wing Commander Prophecy. It's not as compelling a product, and it's in a time when flight simulators are dying, so they kind of get away from that. There were also some spinoffs to Wing Commander at the height of the series, like Privateer and Armada. Privateer is interesting because it's a space trading game. It's that elite influence again. Armada was just kind of a quickie because they wanted something else to feed the beast. We could go into those. The episode's long enough just trying to get through the four main Wing Commander games, so... Other than to mention that they exist, we'll kind of leave it there. It's a series that reached a height of success, I think, with Wing Commander 3. Then a combination of focusing too much on the movie side of it during a period when Sillywood was falling out of favor and not enough on the gameplay side of it at the exact same time that that type of gameplay was falling out of favor just kind of doomed the series. There wasn't any big dramatic end or dramatic blow up that brought it to a close. It's just a type of game that everyone moved on from. In the mid-1990s, it was kind of the pinnacle of what games could be, merging state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, polygonal 3D worlds with the best that Hollywood could offer in motion picture entertainment. Well, we've gone through quite the roller coaster of a story with how Wing Commander was created, brought into existence, ups and downs, trials and tribulations all the different influences that have really made quite a pivotal and interesting series that I think really exemplifies some of the best things that flight simulators can bring to a story presentation just in the way that 
story at the time of the early 90s was just, there was nothing like it when we were kids and had it. So like, wow, this wonderful flight simulator and movie together, interactive plot, all these great things. Oh, look, there's Mark Camel. Oh, look, there's this. Oh my, this builds upon itself in such a really unique way that so few game series actually ever did during that time. Exactly. And, and you know, one thing we didn't mention that, that we should real fast is, is that they extended that universe beyond the games, too, because those first few games, they came with manuals in the form of, like, magazines that were on the carrier, like the first game's character is the Tiger's Claw. So you got claw marks, an issue of claw marks in your box with the game, and it gave the history of the Terran Kilrathi conflict. It gave information on the ships and that made it feel like a lived-in universe with a history. They did some tie-in novels during this time period, many of which followed characters that were not in or were only tangentially in the main uh, game series that further expanded the worlds. It felt like they were building a cohesive universe. Some of the media contradicted itself. They weren't paying too close attention to continuity, but they were trying to give you the sense of something larger with other media as well outside the games. Certainly. That's something you, even today, you don't see a whole lot of. You sort of download the game and they have to present all that lore and all that other stuff within the game context itself. It's not so much these days that you sit down with a physical manual and read through it and go, oh, I didn't know it had that or it had this or this is the setup for all this stuff. That's fascinating. Yeah. You don't have that today so much. You might have some websites or maybe some tangential stuff on the publisher's website, but... That kind of experience there of that discovery, that exploration, that self-directed knowledge gathering is something that is lacking in today's infrastructure. Yeah, it it fires the imagination. It really does. At least it did mine as a preteen and teen in the 1990s. All right, Alex, I would say what are we going to talk about next time, but we already recorded that. So we're going to see you next time where we cover... The whole video game industry, next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.